Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and a very warm welcome to another episode of the Lizzo Wellbeing Show. This week we are going to be talking about eczema, an incredibly common but very uncomfortable skin condition that affects 1 in 12 adults and more than double that number of children. In fact, it's been called the most prevalent Western childhood disease. And I've been joined in my studios by leading dermatologist Dr. Sharon Wong, who has shared her personal experience with the condition what causes the sore, scaly skin, and what can be done to stop about eczema in its tracks. We also explored the link with gut health and the exciting new treatments on the horizon that may offer relief to many. So do please share this episode with friends and family who may struggle with eczema. My family have a long history of it here, so we do know just how real and debilitating it can be. Please join me on Instagram after the show. I'd love to hear your thoughts on all that you are about to hear. So without further ado, let's hear from Dr. Wong. So Sharon, it's so great to be able to chat to you. Thank you so much for dropping into the the podcast and sharing your expertise, because this is something I know that is so close to your heart, isn't it? Working with eczema patients. Yes, but working with eczema patients, but also having been one as well. But thank you so much for inviting me. It's, uh, It's a pleasure to always talk about something that... I can personally relate to as well. It's um, it's always nice to be able to share experiences and um, makes so. it very powerful. So let's hear about your journey because you are a, a doctor, you're a dermatologist, mm-hmm. but you were also an eczema patient. Yes, yes, uh, very much so. Um, so really, my interest in dermatology goes way back to the fact that I've had eczema since I was a baby. So. Growing up, I do remember being in hospital, in and out of outpatient clinics, in and out of inpatient stays, just because I kept having infected eczema. And, you know, very quickly, I I started to really become engaged with how I can look after my skin and prevent those hospital admissions and really became very, very focused on, on the skin and interested in it from a scientific perspective. And I loved science when I was at school, so it made sense for me to go into medicine and maybe even more sense to become a dermatologist. So, um, And that was only just confirmed when I was in medical school and did my first um, clinical attachment in dermatology. And the very first patient that I saw was somebody who had eczema. And, you know, I completely related to everything 
um, that this patient was saying. So, um, yeah, that was my story about, about dermatology and me. So you've always worked with skin. Yes. Focusing on, on eczema in, in particular. Yeah, what, what's, I mean, what's interesting is a lot of people associate eczema particularly as a childhood disorder. And I did read somewhere that eczema is the most common Western childhood disorder now, which seems extraordinary. Is, is that the case? It is. So, I mean, the statistics are such that about one in five children in the UK and one in 12 adults um, in the UK have eczema, which is incredibly common. Um, and uh, it is something that can be all-consuming. I mean, if you think about a, a family of three, you know, having three children and they've all got eczema, the amount of time that those parents would have to invest in bathing them, creaming them, taking them to hospital um, visits, etc. It, it's, it can take over everything, um, but it is incredibly common. And is it genetic? And is it just something that, that we're born with that we can't really help? So eczema is multifactorial and one of the biggest factors is a genetic predisposition and there are lots of genetic associations with eczema. One of the strongest associations is with this gene called filaggrin, which um, uh, is a protein that helps the outermost skin cells sort of stick together to form a nice barrier. So patients who have um, eczema very often will have a mutation in this this protein, um, which means that they have a defective skin barrier. Mm. I've actually heard of, uh, I think they're oral supplements of filaggrin that you can take to help strengthen mm. the skin, which seems to help some people with eczema. I mean, presumably mm. that's the, the rationale behind it, that if they're missing it, that you can replace it as a supplement. It's interesting, yeah, isn't it? I mean, it, it would make logical sense, but the question is how much of that supplement, which obviously if you're taking it by mouth, gets broken down by your gut, and how much of that actually goes to the biggest organ of your body. Um, to repair it and how long does it stay there so um, you know whilst it may help some patients I think it's um, it's important to understand you know not enough of it probably actually will make it to the skin um, and probably not for very long um, and fundamentally there will be this sort of predisposition to always have a defective barrier that means that you lose lipids you lose water so inherently your skin is dry but it's also prone to sensitivity so when you've got little gaps in the skin you can get allergens, infection going into there. So, um, you know, it is, it is quite a complex condition, but fundamentally there will be a genetic predisposition in the majority of patients. So once you have your, your bundle of newborn, and, you know, one of the first things that you're told to do is to be incredibly careful with what you use in the baby bath. And mm. having had all my children at various different stages, it was interesting, you know, my eldest is now nearly 30. So it was just, we'll just have a bath with, with baby bath, you know, and it was it was very much a detergent. It's probably yes. a laurel sulfate, you know, typical <laughs> bath liquid. Yes. Uh, and then by the time I, you know, I had my others who announced in their late teens, it was sort of, oh, no, you just need to put a bit of um, oil or something in the bath. And then with my last one, uh, <laughs> who is much younger, there's always going to be generations here. The advice is just just use water and, and yes. not anything at all. So what's what's your view as a dermatologist for that? Um, my recommendation, I know also from a personal perspective, is that um, actually water on its own can be paradoxically drying. And I think we've probably all been succumbed to that from the hand washing that we're all doing religiously. Um, and especially in, in uh, big cities where there's a lot of hard water as well, water itself, bathing in just water alone can be quite drying on the skin. And so I often recommend to have medicated bath oils added 
uh, to the bath water, which moisturises it. It's usually sort of paraffin-based, so it does form this nice moisturising layer on the skin. Um, so generally speaking, avoid anything that foams or lavas. So bubble baths, nice as they smell and feel, and the kids love to play in there. Um, it will have a surfactant. That's how they make foam and lava. But actually, if you think about when you're washing the dishes and actually the lather is there to strip off the grease from your plates, we don't want the same on dry skin. Uh, so stay away from anything that foams and lavas. Don't use soap. Use a cream-based soap. So what we call emollient washes, oilating and E45 do, do ones. Um, so those sorts of things really just to try and reduce the amount of excess oil that's being removed from the skin that's already dry. Interesting. And I think some people will hear the word paraffin and start mm. to freak out and thinking, I can't possibly put, you know, paraffin or its derivatives on my skin. And yet, you know, we know that, that these paraffin based products, they are extremely safe. They are purified beyond measure and yes. really inert and actually kind of slightly bizarrely gentler on the skin than some of the sort of so-called natural treatments, the Yes. oils or the essential oils as much as i love them they mm -hmm. are full of sensitizing potentially allergenic compounds aren't they absolutely and that that is the key even though it's just natural and it's a plant-based product very often we do see um allergic contact dermatitis as a result uh, of using essential oils which are plant-derived um and you're absolutely right about the paraffin being really purified and inert, and inert is the key word here. What we want is something really bland. Um, and of course, if your, your skin isn't functioning properly as a barrier, that layer of paraffin actually acts like a plaster. So what we're trying to do is emulate what the skin is not able to do when you have eczema, which is to keep unwanted things out. So the things like the allergens and the irritants. Um, and you can effectively do that by having something like paraffin, which essentially forms like a cluster on the skin. Really amazing. And you can use that in the baths. I know you get baths that, that make the water kind of milky and then you can get yes. like skin cells that you can apply afterwards. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And um, moisturisers now are so much better than they were when I was a, a child where they, they really didn't smell very nice and they were just horrible to put on. But they do feel a lot more luxurious and it almost doesn't feel like you're doing anything sort of medical to your skin um, because they do contain quite nice ingredients like glycerin, which you often see in more sort of beauty type moisturisers. But glycerin is a great humectant. So these are ingredients which trap moisture from the outside onto the skin ceramides which are like the lipids that mimic the natural lipids in our skin which was effective of if we have eczema and sometimes urea as well which is what we call a keratolytic it's something that breaks down dead skin cells so it can help if you've got really scaly dry skin so having key additional ingredients um, added to these paraffin based moisturizers can be really effective for eczema really interesting i've seen urea used as an ingredient particularly on things like heel creams for, for dry mm -hmm. skin on the feet or for cracked heels yes and is that because it is breaking down the, the scaly nature of the skin yes exactly so as a catalytic but it would um, be usually for things like heel balms the concentration of urea will be much greater than for a moisturizer that you're putting to much thinner parts of your skin um, because sometimes in higher concentrations it can be a little bit irritant if, if it's too high uh, and you're applying it, let's say, on your neck or your face. So, um, but it is a great ingredient to use for lots of different different types of skin skin problems. 
interesting to hear you as a, a doctor talk about ceramides because that's an ingredient that we hear a lot about in mm -hmm. fancy so-called anti-aging creams is, is there some merit then in the way they work within the skin yeah so um i always like to use the analogy of a brick wall when it comes to talking about skin and eczema so a nice newly laid brick wall is is healthy skin so um, the bricks will be the skin cells and the mortar between us are the lipid layers which actually glue the cells together. And in eczema, think of a dilapidated brick, brick wall, the mortar bits are all sort of, you know, crumbling and you've got gaps in the skin. So, um, and that, that mortar bit, which is the lipid layer, one of the key lipids in that is ceramide. So actually being able to have that in um, a moisturizer to try and replace it on the skin is mightily helpful. And it has been a sort of buzzword um, more recently as a key ingredient to add into dry skin, uh, dry skin care routine. And it doesn't seem to be expensive either. I've seen some some quite good brands in, in local chemists that, that are inexpensive and have some yes. really good ingredients. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So it's very, very affordable. So it's no longer sort of just something that, you know, some luxurious brands with the old level of top that, you know, you, you will be able to find it just off the shelf in your local pharmacy. Yeah. Another ingredient that I like is purified lanolin. Mm. I've, I've used that for a long time. I mean, I use it as a natural lip gloss, but also if I've got sort of areas of chapped, dry skin. And I think lanolin might have had a bad press. I think there was some, some flawed data or some misreporting mis of it being allergenic um, mm. many decades ago, which led to many brands declaring themselves, oh, you know, guaranteed free of lanolin. But actually purified mm. lanolin medical yes. is, is, again, it's inert, isn't it? It's a really yes. thin moisturiser. And that is the key thing. It is, you know, it, you're looking for the purified versions of these, which really are as inert as, as they can get. And lanolin um, is, is great for, as you say, lip balm. Uh, it's, it's including a lot of sort of the nipple creams, for example, in, when you get the chapped nipples after breastfeeding. Um, but yeah, I've, I've been through so many moisturizers over my lifetime, and I agree that, you know, lanolin is a really nice product and ingredient to have in, in, as part of your daily skincare routine if you do have dry skin. Yeah, fantastic. What about things like massage oils? I know particularly for young children, if, if they're having massage, again, you know, there is this misconception sometimes that natural is always best. But a lot of the plant oils, I, I was reading some research saying, you know, don't use olive oil on newborn skin, for example, because it can be sensitizing. Yes, but also there was an actual study done on comparing some of these um, oils and they fundamentally just weren't very good at, at moisturising. Um, and I think, um, you know, as, as oils come, they, they pretty much just sort of go through the skin, get absorbed pretty quickly. And that's not what you want if you've got it. And you actually need it sort of sitting on the surface, actually like a barrier. That's what you're wanting, which is what the paraffins and the lanolins do. Um, so you don't want something where you put it on and within a few minutes, it just feels like you've not moisturised again. So, you know, I think, again, people trying to stay natural, I completely understand the sentiment, but you've got to understand what the, the skin actually needs. Um, and when you've got a broken barrier, you need to replace that barrier with a product that you're applying. And that's where the paraffins and the lanolins come in. Excellent. So what about bathing and moisturising? What about things like diet? What's your advice there? Are there skin sensitising foods that can be triggers? Well, food aggravated eczema, we tend to see slightly more commonly in children compared to adults. Um, but it's interesting because food allergies and intolerances, uh, intolerances do change over time. So often when we see children with six or seven things that they can't eat, 
uh, because it aggravates their skin. In childhood, often when they become adults, a lot of these intolerances they grow out of, but there are some key common ones, so dairy, nuts, uh, gluten, uh, some people with um, citrus fruits, um, tomato seems to be quite a common one as well. Um, and you often see groups of these common food allergens um, being intolerant or aggravating a patient's eczema in, in that same patient. So they often have multiple food allergies. Um, egg is another one, for example. But as I said, it is always worthwhile sort of re-challenging these as the children get older and re-tagging them because often they do grow out of a lot of these um, food allergies with time. And, and can you be clinically tested or is it just a question of sort of excluding them for a while and keeping a food diary? Keeping a food diary is always the best place to start, just tracking any patterns um, that, that you might find. But um, in terms of objective testing, we can do blood tests um, to actually look at the level of allergy to those specific um, food substances. And then we can do um, skin prick testing as well. So um, there may be a few drops of a particular uh, food substance that you would put onto the skin and you just gently prick them into the skin surface and see if you sort of um, develop welts or, you know, an aggravation of your underlying skin condition. So there are ways of objectifying how allergic or intolerant you are um, or to those certain food substances. Mm. And I know as, as somebody who carries the, the eczema gene, uh, and I have unfortunately passed it on to all five of my children, so this is <laughs> an ongoing, not, not a major battle, but certainly I've been very aware of it and know that there are triggers like bubble bath, for example. But one of the things that I found affected them when they were smaller were the food dyes, and particularly the coal tar dyes, the tartrazine, the red, mm. the yellow. And there was a guy, I think, a few decades ago, um, Dr. Feingold, who did some research in sort of hyperactivity and, and linked yes. to and coal tar dyes. Is that something that's sort of stood the test of time? Do people still avoid those additives? Yes, although I do think that because people are so much more aware of, you know, some of the effects of these e-numbers, actually manufacturers, food, food manufacturers are actually much more conscious about reducing the number of e-numbers. And I think consumers as well are a lot more aware. So um, and I think now, compared to the decades before, we are a lot more aware about sort of healthy eating um, and trying to minimise on the processed foods, etc. And I definitely think there has been a shift in food choices over time as well. Um, but now I have definitely come across patients um, when I used to do paediatric dermatology who would be very hyperactive. Their parents would notice that sort of hyperactivity, um, but also their skin their underlying eczema getting worse with certain, you know, food additives and dyes, etc. And of course, we can't uh, finish any conversation about food without talking about the microbiome. Yes, guts and the rise of probiotics and, and the link with with skin health. What's what's happening there from a medical point of view? Yeah, it's been a really interesting area of research, which is still ongoing, um, and it's. It's really fascinating to, to even wrap your head around the fact that your gut could be like your second brain almost, that it can dictate how well other organs will work when they're seemingly completely separate. So we talk about the gut-skin axis, and this is a, a focus of research. And some of the early data, which looked at um, the microbiome, so your natural flora in your gut lining, and, and looked at the, the microbiome in patients with atopic eczema and compared the microbiome with those who don't have eczema, what they did find was that the diversity of microorganisms was very flat. It was, you know, much less diverse than someone who has atopic eczema compared to somebody who doesn't. Um, and you do need that healthy variety 
of good bacteria. Um, and if there is this imbalance that somehow that can influence how well your immune system works in your skin uh, and predispose you to things like atopic eczema. But also another interesting um, area of research is looking at uh, using probiotics to prevent allergies in children. So uh, one particular study looked at um, using certain probiotics in pregnant women in the final trimester, so the last three months, um, and that it could tentatively reduce the risks of food allergies, but also atopic eczema in the offspring. So, you know, we're all waiting in the wings just to see whether there's any more specific guidance, who takes it, what specific type of probiotics. But, you know, you're absolutely right, probiotics are the real sort of buzzword and a microbiome. Um, but I think it, there really is merit in this, and, and it really can potentially transform a lot of people's lives. Amazing. I remember, you know, even during, you know, during my pregnancies and having having my babies being told the importance of breastfeeding in the first mm. few days, weeks, months, particularly in the early days when, when you know, you're yeah. in colostrum and, and the early breast milk, because they're so full, they're so rich of all these different diverse um, bacterial strains that will then mm. populate the, the, the baby's gut and then take that child right the way through, well, for the rest of their lives. Um, and seeing a reduction in cases of eczema for example and perhaps that is now coming back to to showing that it is that diversity in the gut that's yes i mean i think they think all the goodness in breast milk partly obviously antibodies the um the, the normal flora which will then go into the, the baby's gut lining but also things like the good fats and the proteins that's very rich in the colostrum as well all of that i'm sure has this additional beneficial effect on, on the skin um but yeah it's, it would be fascinating to see whether you know pregnant women can proactively do something to minimize that risk of of, of yeah. allergy in their in their children just by taking probiotics uh, during pregnancy um, I think if you are a parent of any child who has food allergies, you know, you've gone through that very challenging period of trying to decipher what is okay for your child to, to take without aggravating their skin or their gut. Um, so yes, anything that can be beneficial. Yeah. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Interesting that you talk about atopic eczema. Are there mm. different types of eczema? So atopic eczema is by far the most common and typically will appear in childhood, um, but some people carry it, carry it on into adulthood as well. Um, there are other types. So another, uh, another common type is contact dermatitis. So that is an external eczema. Uh, and so that basically can come from allergens. So if you have developed an allergic response to things like fragrances, for example, um, but also irritant dermatitis. Um, especially with all the hand washing right now. So that's just with repeated exposure to water, detergents, alcohol gels, which just strip the natural liquids from the skin. So even if you're not genetically predisposed, you can get an irritant eczema as well, just from excessive hand washing. Mm-hmm. And atopic, when we talk about atopic conditions, are we also looking at other things like hay fever, um, allergic rhinitis, asthma, are these all part of what they call the atopic march? That's right. So asthma, eczema, hay fever are the three atopic conditions and they are related. They're genetically related. So you often find them percolating in different family members. So somebody might have asthma, somebody else might have eczema. Um, But they are related in the sense that your immune system is genetically wired to behave in a very hypersensitive manner, um, affecting the lung, the skin and the nasal passage. Um, and it's interesting that if one parent has an atopic disease, the risk of that child developing atopic eczema is 25%. But if both parents have an atopic disease, that increases to 50%. So that just tells you how strongly genetically linked that they are. Yeah. And I know that sunlight seems to beneficial, be, be beneficial for some with eczema. It seems that, you know, we, we get more eczema perhaps. I mean, you'll know this from your clinic. Do you see mm. more eczema in, in the winter months? Yes, this is typically around the time that we start getting waves of patients getting flare-ups of eczema. Um, so it, it's multifactorial, obviously, that, that you know, it's it's reduction in the amount of sunshine that you're getting, that people are indoors a lot more, but also the ambient temperature and the indoor climate changes enormously as well. So central heating typically goes in mine's on now. Um, and the indoor climate's much drier for the skin. So um, all of those things can flare up eczema. But... Um, Often patients will find that when they're on a sunny holiday, their skin gets better. Um, and that's because UV on the skin acts as an anti-inflammatory. Um, and we do have phototherapy as a treatment for eczema and indeed psoriasis. So um, we can deliver UV in a very protocol manner to make sure it's safe and uh, we're not burning the skin, etc. Um, but that is an actual treatment for eczema and psoriasis and other inflammatory skin conditions. So would that be like going on a sunbed? Not quite. <laughs> we will never advocate a sunbed. You'll never hear a just say, go on a sunbed. Um, no, so, um, these are all written protocols set from, gosh, decades ago, where you very carefully assess the patient's in dose. Obviously, it will be lower for someone with fair skin, a little bit higher for someone with um, uh, darker skin type. And you would go and have phototherapy two or three times a week for 
six to 12 weeks at a time um, as a course of treatment. Um, so it is very carefully monitored as to how much UV you have to reduce that risk of excessive UV damage. Could, could you get a nice prescription from your doctors just to go on a sunny holiday? On holiday. <laughs> I, need I need my sunshine. <laughs> well, I, yes, exactly. I have had quite a few patients actually come in and say, look, could you just put it on a prescription or a trip to yeah. like Greece or something? So yeah, <laughs> I wish I could and I'd go with them. Um, but sadly, yes, it's, uh, it's interesting because quite a few patients who have relocated from sunny climates to the UK develop, have developed eczema for the first time. Um, and uh, yes, I think there are small pockets of patients, which I am one, who actually get photoaggravated eczema. So unfortunately, in the sun, I get worse. Oh, My eczema yeah. actually gets worse, paradoxically. So um, yeah, that's, never mind. <laughs> okay, so it, it does differ. With the sun there, is there a link with vitamin D? Because we know that we're obviously synthesizing a lot of vitamin D through our skin in, in sunshine. Is there a vitamin D connection? Yes, so vitamin D has, it's one of these ubiquitous vitamins that seems to do something for every single organ in your, in your body. And in the skin, it's, it's responsible partly for the cell differentiation um, and the, the proliferation of, of skin cells and the turnover, but also with the immune system in your skin as well. So we know that low vitamin D and indeed low iron as well um, can aggravate underlying itchy skin problems. Um, so it is what part of our blood screen that we do for patients when they have dry, itchy skins to check their vitamin D and iron and to replace it if they're deficient. Um, so there definitely is that link. So we've looked at food and our skincare regimes and, you know, particularly supplements like vitamin D potentially being helpful. Moving on now to the more medical-based treatments, once sure. people come across your door, presumably they are in a relatively advanced state if they get mm. referred to a dermatologist. What would be yes. your first line of treatment for somebody with eczema? You're right. By the time they come and see us, they're usually in the moderate to severe category. Depending on how bad it actually is, then we, we would use the appropriate strength steroid. Now, sometimes if it's head to toe, like more than 80, 90% of the body surface area, it's not possible or practical that patient to be putting creams on x number of times a day so often we would even go in with oral steroids just to pull them out of a really bad flare-up but that's a short-term measure you're settling it down as an acute flare-up and then assessing what their maintenance requirements are so do they need steroids all the time in which case we would switch them to a non-steroid anti-inflammatory cream or um would you know would they need something like phototherapy for a period of time just to reset the clocks of their um their disease in the more severe cases, patients who can't seem to come off the steroids, of course, we can't use steroids long term. So then we would be using immune suppressant drugs. Right. So they sound very scary, but they are there to sort of dampen down the, the, the immune system, which is also overexcited in the skin. They are potentially quite dangerous medications with serious, serious side effects. They do need to be under close supervision under a dermatologist. But examples for methotrexate, Methotrexate, for example, is a medication that's been used by rheumatologists for rheumatoid arthritis for many, many years. And it's a way of being able to maintain some sort of anti-inflammatory effect, but without using those other sort of treatments that we would go on to after creams, after phototherapy. But with eczema, we've also had a relatively new breakthrough um, in the form of a biologic. So a biologic is the type of medication which you administer as an injection usually. And... Um, uh, they target specific areas of your immune system. 
So instead of having a blanket immune suppression drug, you're actually targeting specific molecules in the immune system. So you can be much more specific with your immune suppressant effect. Mm. And how long would you be on any kind of immune suppressant for, typically? Usually, if patients require immune suppression, they're they're at the severe end of the spectrum. And the likelihood is that if they're off all immune suppression, their their disease will just come back to the same extent. So it doesn't necessarily mean to say they can't have treatment breaks, but the likelihood of them having lasting remission is going to be quite small. Mm. I know a lot of people worry about steroid creams, and they say, oh, I don't want to have any steroid cream because it's going to thin my skin and mm. you know, I'm, I'm using, is it hydrocortisone? Would that be sort of the, the first steroid cream? I think you can even buy that over the counter, can't you? You can, yeah. So um, hydrocortisone is at the bottom of the steroid ladder. Um, so it's quite, it's very weak. And then the one above is Umavit, which you can also buy over the counter. Beyond that, they're prescription strength. So that's when you're getting to the potent, super potent strength steroids. And of course, you know, as, as Jones, we do, come across a lot of patients who are very worried about steroids because of the potential skin thinning side effects. What I would say is that the risks of that happening are small provided that you are supervised uh, appropriately. So you're not using um, the incorrect strength of steroids. You're not using something super potent on your face, for example, um, and you're not using the steroids for too long unchecked as well. So uh, if you're only needing to use steroids for a week at a time, twice a year, that's not a problem. But if your flare-ups are back-to-back, then of course your dermatologist, your GP, shouldn't be giving you endless steroids. We will be looking at steroid alternatives. And there are a group of um, medications called calcineurin inhibitors, which come as creams and ointments that are licensed for maintenance of eczema, and they are steroid-free. So there is an anti-inflammatory effect on the skin, but they are not steroids, so they don't thin the skin, they don't bleach the skin. Uh, and the key thing is that getting on top of eczema quickly is really, really important. And that's where steroids work the best still. Yeah. And these calcium inhibitors, are they? Calcium neurin inhibitors. Yeah. Calcium neurin inhibitors. And you can get those from your GP and they're, they're relatively safe and straightforward for all ages? Yes. So we even use them in, in children and in areas where you really can't get away with using steroids for too long, like eyelid eczema. You know, your skin around your eyelids are so thin. You might use it the steroids for maybe a week or so to settle the worst of the flare and then you really are then moving on to non-steroid anti-inflammatory things so yes they are safe to use long term and that's what they're licensed for as maintenance treatment. Mm. In terms of maintenance coming back to, to diet is there anything that we should be maintaining in our diet we've talked about the role of oils for example topically what about internally can we moisturize our skin from within by by having lots of fats in our diet? I think the uh, polyunsaturated fats for sure, so the omega-3s and 6s, but also um, hydration. I mean, obviously, your, your, your skin being the biggest organ, and it's there to try and reduce the amount of water losses as well. So if your skin isn't healthy, you're probably losing a lot more water and moisture from, from your skin surface. So making sure you're well hydrated. But as a general rule of thumb, any, any sort of diet that's good for you internally will also be good for you externally as well. And just making sure that things like your vitamin D and your iron in particular are also replete. Um, so, you know, and, and I think things like carbs and fats have always had a bad reputation over the years. But the key thing is to choose the right fats and the right carbs. Um, uh, and, you know, those sorts of diets are good for you, your cardiovascular system. And your general health and it is for your skin as well yes what about the link with sugar 
sugar is is you know reputed to be inflammatory and and to you know help with flare-ups which aren't necessarily helpful you know particularly with acne as well as other inflammatory skin conditions do you do you recommend a low sugar diet and again, well, certainly the refined sugars uh, and the very processed foods have been implicated in a lot of skin diseases, as as you, you mentioned, acne being the primary one where there's been quite a, an obvious link. Things like um, low fat foods, where the fat, the full fat's been removed, but it's just been replaced with processed carbs. Yeah, uh, sure. just, yeah. <laughs> yeah so, so those, those sorts of foods on skin, and even outside of a sort of medical skin problem, um, the refined sugars have been associated with accelerated skin aging, for example. Um, so for more reasons than, than eczema or acne, it is generally advised to be on a, you know, a, a less processed diet. Yeah. And how do we tell the difference between eczema and another sort of scaly, itchy condition like mm. psoriasis or rosacea even? So psoriasis and eczema um, are quite similar in places, but there are subtle differences as well. So um, psoriasis tends to light the extensive of the body, so around the elbows and the knees, whereas it's the reverse for eczema, it tends to light the flexures of the creases of the elbows and the backs of the knees. But also the appearance of the patches are different between eczema and psoriasis. So in psoriasis, the plaques of red skin are much more well-defined. You could literally take a pen and draw the outline of it, whereas in eczema, it's much more ill-defined. And the degree of scaling that you get in psoriasis is a lot worse, actually. So much thicker, coarse, silvery scales, where it's more powdery. The other thing about psoriasis is that it can cause nail changes. So you can get little indentations of what we call nail pits. Um, and it can be associated with things like psoriasis and uh, arthritis as well. So there's a form of arthritis called psoriasis arthritis, which is associated with the skin condition. Rosacea is slightly different, however. So rosacea is very much um, a facial eruption as opposed to it potentially affecting anywhere on your body, unlike eczema and psoriasis. Um, and there are two different, well, two common types of rosacea. One is vascular rosacea, where you get that rosiness, uh, that rosy complexion and the flushing. Um, and another type is acne rosacea, which, um, as the name suggests, you get acne-like spots. But you can have more than one condition affecting the same part of your skin. So I know not uncommonly, actually, I have patients who have eczema as well as rosacea. So sometimes it can be quite tricky um, making sure they've got a skincare routine that agrees and, or at least doesn't aggravate one problem whilst trying to sort out the other. Can you can they benefit from similar treatments and similar products? There we can use in treatments that can help both conditions, we will do. Um, but a classical example where that doesn't work is if you've got acne and eczema, so you've got a greasy skin problem and you've got a dry skin problem happening on, on the facial skin. So you have to assess the patient and see what the overriding problem is and try and sort that out as quickly as possible without causing too much aggravation of the other problem so sometimes it, it can be a little bit tricky um but wherever possible if we've got treatments that can work for both things we'll go for those i've heard that um i know acne rosacea is not acne you know mm. that is is its own thing although it's got this name acne rosacea but some of the treatments are similar aren't they Yes, so um, from the topical perspective, we do use topical antibiotics um, for both conditions. Uh, where it slightly differs is that um, there is a topical um, cream called cilantro, which has been licensed for some years now for acne rosacea. And it actually contains an insecticide called ivermectin. Um, and we have, 
<laughs> and that's because there is a mite follicles. It's part of our normal flora uh, called demodex, which seems to cause a hypersensitive reaction in some patients and lead to acne-like spots. And that's what you get with acne rosacea. So cilantro is ivermectin cream, uh, which can help reduce the amount of these mites that you carry on the skin. Moving beyond the topicals, then the antibiotics that we use are often tetracycline-based um, and again used for teenage acne, regular acne, but also acne rosacea as well. And people shouldn't be afraid of that, should they? Because I think if you, what you, what I think you're saying is, if you catch these things early mm. with a little bit of medical intervention, be it a steroid cream or be it a course of antibiotics mm. that just kind of nips it in the bud before it takes a grip. Yes, exactly. And that, and I think uh, that's the key message for a lot of skin diseases is that try and get on top of it as soon as you possibly can. It's always going to be much easier to manage when you've got smaller areas, less severe areas, and much more likely to respond to milder treatments. Um, so that is a key message for uh, all skin diseases, really. And then I can't really end any conversation that I have about skin without talking about gut health and my favorite subject, kefir. Um, because I just know that so many people who have started drinking kefir or making kefir do say that things that the inflammatory skin conditions, you know, like rosacea, do seem to, to help. And not only just drinking it, but actually even, you know, splashing it on the face as a, as a face wash, I guess, maybe. Maybe there's something in it in these beneficial gut bugs. I don't know what you make of that. Yeah, so topical um, prebiotics and probiotics are definitely, um, you know, on our radar. Um, and certainly for some conditions like rosacea and like acne and eczema, at the moment, we're all sort of waiting to see what the specific guidelines are with ongoing research, because we there are so many different types of probiotics and are there specific ones for specific skin conditions. We don't really have that detail at the moment. Um, in the meantime, I'm sure there's lots of self-help treatments going on at home. Um, but until we get a little bit more clarity, we're probably not going to. Yeah, absolutely. Is there anything else that's exciting you for the future? Really, I, from the eczema perspective, I, I definitely think it's the gut-skin axis, which is really, really um, interesting. And my other sort of specialty area is in hair loss, actually. And similarly, um, there, there seems to be a relationship between the gut microflora and alopecia areata. Um, so, you know, I, I think this whole research area of the gut-skin axis will actually percolate to lots of other skin and hair conditions that we commonly manage. And it probably will transform what we... Uh, recommend to patients uh, over time. So, yeah, I think that for me is the most exciting arena at the moment that uh, we're just waiting to hear a little bit more about. It's so fascinating. Honestly, I, I wrote my book about gut health, having spoken to, to medics such as yourself, working in all these different areas of specialization. And everybody is talking about the microbiome and gut health, whether it's mental health or Parkinson's or talking to rheumatologists or cardiologists or, you know, whatever, whatever your field, it seems to be that all the roads are leading back to, to the microbiome. It's interesting because uh, quite a few years ago, um, I had a patient talk to me about, oh, I've read somewhere that um, the gut is your second brain. And at that time, it was like, this is a very new concept. It's very interesting. But it's clearly she knew stuff that I didn't know. Um, but yeah, it's... Um, it, it is a fascinating area, and I know that from gastroenterology colleagues of mine that the gut microbiome and the balance of the gut flora is definitely implicated in things like inflammatory bowel disease. Um, 
uh, and other autoimmune diseases as well. So it's um, it's a really fascinating area. So I think we're all just sort of wait. We just need to wait and uh, hear hear the latest. I think, um, and and hopefully that translates to something we can actually tangibly do for patients with subsequent benefits in their skin disease. Fantastic, um, Karen. It's so great to talk to you. Thank you so much. I hope you'll come back and give updates on, on gut health and skin and more. And I'd love to pick up on that conversation about hair loss as well, because there's clearly so much that um, that we can talk about that's just of huge interest. I will make sure that we put all the details of everything that we talked about in the notes afterwards, because I know there's a lot that people want to follow up, but thank you very much for your time. No, thank you ever so much for having me. Thank you. And that is all for today's episode. What a truly enlightening chat. And don't forget, there is an e-guide all about dry skin and eczema that you can find over on lizellwellbeing.com. You can also find all the links and the resources mentioned on today's show there as well. And you can sign up for the free weekly newsletter filled with lots of ideas for living a happier, healthier life. Huge thanks to all of you who have left us such lovely reviews for the podcast. It really does help others to find the show. So thank you, especially if you have given us a five-star review on iTunes. We love you for that. Thank you very much indeed. Until the next time we chat, go well. Bye-bye. The Lizelle Wellbeing Show is presented by me, Lizelle, with production by Amaryllis Earl and Harry Trevithick at Heart Dialogue. With thanks to my producer, Ellie Smith, guest booker, Millie de la Moriniere, and our assistant researcher, Martha Comerford. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.